God, this Advent year, um, we've been talking about healing. And I pray that um, as we move out of Epiphany and have been astonished by the ways that you have showed up in our lives, that we would now prepare our hearts um, to grieve and to lament the hard things that we have experienced and the ways in which you are working as we prepare for this Lenten season. We are mindful as we move into spring that there has been lots of death and lots to grieve. And um, Jesus, allow our hearts to grieve the state of the world that we live in. We think about children still separated from families at the border. We think about polarizing opinions that we see all over the news. We think about broken systems, um, criminal injustice and healthcare and so many systems that are around us that are broken. And we just can't help but grieve the state of the world that we live in. And we pray for healing. God, I pray for the dreams that are unrealized here tonight, family members who are sick or have died. God, I pray that we would take a moment and just imagine someone or something that we are longing for healing. And when we have that person or that thing in mind, now I just pray, Lord, that we would imagine what that person or that thing would look like if it was whole and restored. May that be our prayer. Not that we could control or fix, but God, that we would have the imagination to imagine your wholeness and your healing. We realize, Jesus, that healing takes time. Sometimes it takes vulnerability and a willingness to be, um, to be unwell. <laughs> and God, in your name, I pray that um, you would be in our relationships that you would um, be in our land, heal our land, and acknowledge the suffering of our world. And we remember just how astonished we've been in this season as we prepare, uh, as we look towards the cross and 40 days. Um, we are looking forward to resurrection, healing, and new life. Amen. you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17. Today is what we call Transfiguration Sunday, but at our church it's also called uh, the State of the Church Sunday. So if you do not have a Bible, somebody would love to bring you a Bible. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. Just raise your hand. We have Bibles in Spanish and in English, both. Raise your hand. Somebody would, right there, right there. Thank you so much. And uh, our kids, they are already moving, but they are heading downstairs for our kids' sermon. So if you are kindergarten and above, not too far above, kindergarten through fifth grade, Charlie, stay there. Kindergarten through fifth grade, you're welcome to go downstairs with Pastor Hope. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. And uh, let us stand as we honor the reading of God's word for us tonight. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew, the gospel writer. 
He says, six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. Then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. As they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as I said, this Sunday is important for the church because it's known as Transfiguration Sunday. Transfiguration Sunday is always the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany. All over the world, churches are reading from this particular text in Matthew, and they're being reminded of the miraculous, the divine, the God-glorious, completely unbelievable event that took place on the side of that mountain. It's also an important day for here, uh, for us here and for uh, the life of our church here on the corner of 8th Street because two times a year we set aside a couple of Sundays to speak about where we are as a church. One of those Sundays that we set aside happens in September and we call that Vision Sunday and we spend time on that Sunday talking about the future that we have as a church. But the second Sunday is this one, and it's our State of the Church Sunday where we talk about where we've been. Now, I think it's important to talk about where we've been because you can't know where you're going if you don't know where we've been. So, here we are. We're here on the corner of 8th and Lee, and before we... Before we begin, I'd like, to ma- I'd like to do a little bit of an experiment, if I could, okay? So, uh, we are a church that is only about four years old. Our four-year anniversary happened this last November. We started on November the 29th of 2015, and we rented the sanctuary of City Presbyterian Church, which is five blocks north, for about two and a half years. And there were, I don't know, 50 to maybe 60 of us that started out as a new church. And we are a completely different church than we were just a few years ago. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like those of you that were a part of the original core team, what I I call you all the first generation, I I want you to raise your hands if you would. You knew what life was like before we were in a church. That's a lot of people. That's very impressive. Okay, very good. So, um, so you are what I call the, the first generation and, and you are the folks that were on kind of the front end of writing the Midtown Church, what we used to be called the Midtown Church slash 8th Street Church Story. Now, there's another group of people that came shortly after we started. You found Midtown Church when we were meeting at City Prez. 
you weren't you weren't part of the group that was before we launched, but you came soon after we launched. I call you the second generation. If there are any of you here, we just some of you are here, the second group. Uh, I call you the second generation, and you were the you were the folks that were you, you were on the kind of the beginning of crafting the Midtown Church Eighth Street story. Not at the very beginning, but really early on. And there's a third group of people that I like to call the third generation. And you might be those people that landed here since we've been here on 8th Street. You heard about this church from a friend, or you live close and you wanted to check it out. Now you've been here for, I don't know, maybe a year, maybe two. You might even be kind of a person that's trying to figure the whole thing out. You might even feel new still like you're trying to fit in, but regardless, you've kind of decided, yep, this is, this is sort of my church. Maybe that's you. If that's you, we just like show some bravery. A few of you, very good. And then I'm not going to point out the newbies who are like, this is my first time, don't point me out. Hold on, stop talking, please. So, uh, let me just say this to uh, generation two, three, and four, okay? That first generation, that group of people that raised their hands, we set out to meet you. We didn't know you, but we prayed for you. And we imagined a church for you, and we did it well before we knew you, and our lives are better now because we found you. And we just didn't want to build a church for you we wanted to actually enter a space to, to find you so that we could build a church together. And that is exactly what we've done. We've done that in the figurative sense because church is a community of people who are and do what we said that we wanted to be and what we wanted to do. And we said that just a few minutes ago in our responsive reading. But we also literally, we literally built a church. We literally built this place. It was originally built in 1907, but we got here just two years ago and we had to remodel the place. So I want to give you some highlights about this church and the kinds of people that we're becoming and the kinds of people that, uh, the kinds of things that we've done because of the kinds of people that we want to be. So here, here are the nuts and bolts. When we set out as a new church, we decided on this fourfold vision. It's right here before you. And the reason I'm showing you this is because I want us to reflect back a little bit because over the last four to five years, our experience together really has been a mountaintop, God-divine-like experience, and I never want us to forget it. We said that this was our fourfold vision. We wanted an urban building restored. We wanted to find ways to create connection and community. We wanted to be good and useful neighbors. And we wanted to do this because we wanted to live in the way of Jesus. So I want to structure this sermon kind of around these four ingredients. The first one is an urban building restored. Now, you need to know that, that how I categorize this is this way. This building... And the story of how we got it, it's a gift that blows my mind. Now, when we first started, we were looking for places to worship all over. We thought about storefronts, maybe an empty grocery store. There was the old Midtown Theater. Maybe you don't even know that it's there. There's an old Midtown Theater on Northwest 12th and Hudson. 
Uh, we even looked at it with a real estate agent, but that would have been millions and millions of dollars to buy and then renovate. We even thought, we had no place to go, so we even thought, hey, let's go downtown and find a high-rise building and rent a place to worship downtown. We'll figure it out. We were willing to go anywhere. But the thing that we knew that we wanted to do is we wanted to be, most of all, really good neighbors and immerse ourselves wherever we went. So one day I'm in my office and Scott Dedman called and he said there was an old church building on the corner of Northwest 8th and Lee. And this was early in 2015. We had not even started as a church yet. And he and I came through this building and it was a mess. I mean, it was an absolute mess. The sanctuary was a disaster. The downstairs was even worse. It felt like a dungeon. When you walk through the downstairs, little puffs of mold would float into the air and fleas would jump all over you as you walk through there. This was formerly the home to the Skyline Urban Ministries, which is now located on Southeast 15th Street in a facility that is much better suited for them and what they need to do. But this place was gross. I mean, there's no other way to say it. But we felt like the size of the building would be manageable. It was appropriate for us. It was located in a good spot. And it was built as a church, as you can see originally. And it was zoned as a church, which means that we would not be going into a storefront and pushing a for-profit business opportunity out of the way that actually might be a benefit to the local economy. We wanted to be here because we thought it was the way by which we could be the very best neighbors. The only problem was, actually there was a lot of problems, the first problem was when I called our real estate agent to inquire, he said, no, that place isn't for sale. But here's the thing. We, we all loved it. So that small group of people, along with our sponsoring church, began to pray about this church, and we started feeling like it could be our home. And I'm so glad that Scott Dedman had connections that our real estate agent did not. He made a couple of phone calls, found out that the building was owned by St. Anthony Hospital, who had purchased it from the Methodist and, and Skyline Urban Ministry in 2011. And it had just been sitting here empty for about three years. Saints bought it and then just held on to it. So Scott set up a meeting, and before I knew it, I was in the CEO's office, sitting across from the CEO and the COO of St. Anthony with Scott, asking if this building was for sale. And to be honest, I really can't even remember everything that went on. It's like a big blur to me. It was, I can only see myself like the disciples were trying to see themselves, like we've got to capture this somehow. But, but I, just, it, I just know it was a short meeting, less than 30 minutes, and it went something like this. We talked about how we wanted to be good neighbors. We talked about what had been going on with the building. We asked if it was for sale. We asked if it would be okay if a Catholic hospital that owned it would be okay with a Protestant church buying it. And then this, we asked this question, how much is it going to cost? Because we did not have any money. Now, when I mean I, we didn't have any money, like nothing, we had no money, like I got my keys in my pockets, that, that's it. Now I may be exaggerating a little, but I don't think it's too much. That, it felt like a moment of glory, like a, like a moment on the mountain happened. Something divine took place. 
Because saints, within that, like, that 30-minute meeting, said they'd like us to be their neighbors. And then they said this. This just continues to blow my mind. They said, you know, we've, got, uh, we've gotten a lot of offers for that property. We've even been offered in the millions for that property. But we don't want it torn down. There are people who want to develop it, make it into a pub, or one guy wanted to make it into a racetrack. It's not nearly big enough. Or, or make it into a housing development or just tear it down entirely. People wanted this land right here because of that skyline over there. And saints said, we want it taken care of and preserved. So here's what we'll do. We will sell it to you for what we bought it for. And then they said the number, and it was a number that almost knocked me out of my chair because I knew what other buildings were going for down here in Midtown. St. Anthony had this building appraised in 2011, and they bought the building in 2011 for what it was worth, $350,000. And now they were handing it to us. A Midtown piece of property for $350,000. I wanted to laugh and I wanted to cry at the same moment because it was cheap, but I didn't have 350. (laughs) And then there were these other problems. While they were turning down millions to give it to us, we didn't have any money. But then even if we had the 350, the building was in such bad shape that we could not worship here. It was flea infested, had asbestos, and didn't even have any working bathrooms. And then, you know, I could again be wrong about how all these details went because, you know, my mind is fuzzy because I felt like I was having a mountaintop, out-of-body experience. But these two leaders from St. Anthony proposed a deal. They knew we didn't have the 350. They knew the building wasn't in good shape. So they said, we know this building isn't in good shape, so what if we do this? What if we create a purchase agreement that lets you take possession of the building and then you do the fundraising for the remodel, put that money towards the building so that you can move in, then you live in it for a while and you won't have to pay for it until four years after you started the remodel. Now think about this. That means that St. Anthony Hospital turned down millions for this space Then they were offering to sell it to us, an unproven group of people that they didn't really know that wasn't coming really from their faith tradition for what it was appraised for in 2011. They were not going to make any money on it and we did not have to pay for it until theoretically 2021. Hold on. Don't yell out, please. So... We were not buying a place in Midtown. We, we were buying a place in Midtown for what it was appraised for in 2011, but we, we weren't going to have to pay for it until 10 years later. That, that just blows my mind. Because then, they weren't finished. Then they said, now let's pretend that you guys don't make it as a church which didn't feel so great, except for the truth is this, that 50% of church starts close their doors within the first five years. And then those that don't close their doors within the first five years, 50% of those close their doors within 10 years. 
So they said, let's pretend that you don't make it as a church and you spend all this money or whatever the case may be. What we'd like to do is we'd be, we'd like to be the first right of refusal, which means, which means that we'll buy, the, we, we'll buy it back from you. And in order to be fair, we'll get a third party appraiser to appraise the building and we'll pay fair market value. Which means that we have, we would have a guaranteed buyer if we didn't make it. And whatever money we put into the place, we would get back, assuming that there wasn't some kind of catastrophe that caused all the real estate prices in Midtown and Downtown to crash. Now, where you sit is a gift. This is a gift. This is a home. It is a gift for us. It's been nearly handed to us. Sometimes I just can't believe it. And I think that this is what the mountaintop experience may have been for Peter, James, and John. Now, here's the part that I really, really can't believe. We started the construction of this building in August of 2017. Our first Sunday here was April 1st, Easter Sunday of 2018. And we, a small group of people, that first generation of folks with a little bit of the second generation and then the third generation just barely started coming in. But what we started doing is we started praying that we could do this project debt-free. And we felt like that was the best thing we could do. And our construction cost, because this place was in such hard shape, was $1.8 million. And we were able to raise that money and we paid for the whole thing. This is not a huge church. And don't ask me how we did that. We have a few people in our congregation that make some good money, but nobody in our congregation make, made that kind of money. Everyone just did a little bit. And I think that that's how real communities work. The little congregation that was about 80 or so ended up raising, the little, the little congregation that was us was raised about $240,000. And the rest came in through private donations. Some people, uh, some people we asked, some people we didn't even have to ask. One guy called me out of the blue. He said, Chris, I own a chain of restaurants. Are you restoring the building on 8th Street? I said, yes. He said, I have money burning a hole in my pocket. Who can I make the check out to? I said, I wanted to say myself. I said, 8th Street. $1.8 million. I still cannot figure out how that happened. You know, we, we said this. We said it and we continue to say it, but we said it for our first few years. We said the 8th Street Church is a building in Oklahoma City. We want to reimagine and restore. But it's more than a building that's being restored. And we have found that indeed it's more than a building that's being restored. This place is becoming our home, and it's, it's open to those in need every single day. Now, I know that some of you can't be here every single day, but it actually is becoming that. Phineas F. Brzee, when he started the Church of the Nazarene, said, we can imagine a church without the rich, but we could never imagine a church without the poor. Kenneth lives on the side of our church. Uh, he's been there for a few years but I finally have gotten to know him. I said, Kenneth, you're our security guard. And he watches over our church. Now, I don't know how long he's been on the street, but he's found a home here. Even if he doesn't worship with us in the morning, he comes in, he uses our bathroom, gets a cup of coffee. We provide a safe haven for him. 
And we're learning his story. He's learning ours. Tony lives down the road. He borrows our recycle bin sometimes to help him carry his belongings. He always returns it. He lives with his cousin in the burned out house down the road. His cousin's wife was killed when the house caught on fire. Now his cousin is catatonic. And so he collects food and other things for him while they still lived in that burned out house. Saints gives him supplies, checks up on him. And then he takes those, those supplies and carries them home in our recycle bin. Tanya and Nicholas want to get married. They come and visit fairly regularly, but they are without work, and so they're trying to save up. And they come to warm themselves and to read the very few books that we have in our very small library downstairs. Kerry was in the Air Force for 19 years. At one point, he was a journeyman plumber. He's been deployed three times. After growing up Amish in Pennsylvania, he decided to rebel against his pacifist community by joining the military. He was wounded, became an addict, lives on the streets, and sits in our church, both here in worship. He's not here tonight, but here in worship, and downstairs with us in our office whenever he feels shame for using again. And I, I remind him when he visits here that his mother who died just a few years ago, loved him until the day he died. Uh, Theo Rambo had a hip replacement, but he couldn't afford the physical therapy, so things didn't heal well. And his wife died just a year ago, a year and a half ago from cancer, and he'll stop in to chat. Mikhail said, Pastor Mikhail said uh, in her 8th Street dream a few years ago, that she dreamt that this place would be the kind of place that people, when they came in, could interrupt the pastors for prayer and conversation. And that's what's happened. Joe and Oni have gotten married in this place. So have Ken and Amanda. Our, kid, our kids had a camp here last year. An interdenominational group comes here every Monday for Lexio Divina, which is a time for spiritual reading. Andrew Oaks is the regional director of mission integration for the spirit, which is like the director of spiritual formation over at the hospital. And he's going to start holding care gatherings here for the health care workers and the staff at Saints who are so tired. An Anglican priest leads a mid-morning service of intercession here every Thursday from 9 until 10 a.m. The Mossars, the Kymigs, the Allens, the Dawsons, the Underwoods, the Friezes, and others have dedicated their children here. Children have sung, read, and led in worship and cried out their hallelujahs when I'm trying to preach in here. A million stories have been told and a million stories more have been taking place that haven't yet been told. We have classes here. Brian is helping people get out of debt. Mikhail is leading, led a funeral for people who were homeless that died in 2019. About 40 people were honored. Paul helps people and welcomes people into this strange group that we call the Church of the Nazarene by teaching classes here. And now plans are being made by groups of people to do landscaping and even starting a community garden over here on the east lot and a master planning group is talking about building an outdoor kitchen over here on the west side because as my friend brad bandy says the world changes when we're eating at tables together this is our home this is your home we want it to be your home and we've said that we want this place to be a gift of, a gift to the city and this is what we mean 
And now we've been worshiping here for nearly two years, which means that we need to start thinking about that final $350,000 because we want, it to, we want to continue to be a safe, this to be a safe place for us and for others. And it's our prayer to do this whole project debt-free. And so the money is due February of 2021. And over the next year, we're going to begin to talk about how we want to go about doing this. But I've always, always, always told you, like I say to my children, I'll always tell you the truth. So I'll always be upfront with you whenever I can. So I'll just lay it out in real time. In real time. So uh, we said that we, we, wanted to be, we wanted to have an urban building restored, but we also want to be good and useful neighbors. And you truly are good and useful neighbors. I am so proud of you. We are not a wealthy church by any means. The chosen vocation of this congregation is either education or like counseling, therapy, social work. But some of you are the most generous people I know. And we've arranged our church finances so that we can be generous. And so just presenting it to you, the total money that we raised as a church in 2019 was $325,263.87. And we have a budget that we make sure that we follow, but there's actually three main categories. The first category is this, tithes and offerings. Like when we receive tithes and offerings on a Sunday night. And we received $262,690.12. Now, this might seem huge, but for other churches our size, it's, it's actually quite comparable. And so uh, I'm super grateful for that. And I want to tell you this, that the first 10% that we raise is given away to serve other churches, ministries, opportunities for education, supplement other pastor salaries in poor areas, etc. And we call this paying, paying allocations. And it's something I feel strongly about. I just don't want to spend everything that we raise here on us. So the first 10% goes away. Then with the rest, we pay for things like the maintenance of this building, like Utilities, keeping the lights on, basic maintenance, keeping the grass mowed, things like that. We pay for ministries like children's ministries and, and worship ministries and spiritual formation workshops and retreats and events. And we pay for salaries through this category. And just so you know, full transparency, none of the pastors choose their own salary. It's all directed by a finance committee of the church board. But that's the first thing. The second thing is this, that we have a freedom fund. And we raised $62,573.75 in our freedom fund. Now, on top of tithes and offerings, people give to our freedom fund, which is this completely different category, and 100% of what we've been given in the freedom fund is given away. This year, we were able to help single moms, we were able to buy school supplies for kids. We were able to provide groceries for people that were in need. We helped, out, we helped folks out with transportation. We helped, we are a church, and we helped a woman in an abusive relationship get a divorce. We're one of the only churches that I know that pay for a divorce. And the list goes on and on. I love that about you all. The things that, that I get to see every day the things, the needs around. I love asking people to give money when I know it's going to help somebody else out. And you've given over $62,000 to help others. 
And then the third thing is this, the building purchase fund. And last year we raised just a little over $1,600. But the good news is this. I mean, this is just unbelievable. It feels mountaintop. A few weeks ago, somebody came to me and said, I heard you had a debt on the building. I'd like to give you $50,000 towards that debt and leave it as a match so that others could match it. And you are welcome to pay off, to give to the payoff of the debt at any time, but our leadership, our board and staff is putting together a payoff strategy that we'll be presenting to you at a later time. But this, but, but here's the thing, you know, if everybody just did a little like we did before, Holly and I are going to add 1% to what we, what we give. If everybody just added just 1% to what you give, like we did with 1.8, I mean, I, I think we could do this. It's because we live in this place and it's an urban building being restored, but it's more than a building that's being restored. And it's the way in which we want to be good and useful neighbors. And it's the way by which we want to create connection and community. When we started this church, it, it just was so different. We had about six parish groups with eight people in each group, and now we have... 10 parish groups with an average of 16 people in each group. We've learned that the way people connect is twofold. One, they get involved in a parish group. If you're not in a parish group, we want to invite you to be a part of a parish group. If you don't like your parish group, great, let's find you another one. The second thing that we want to do is we want you to find a meaningful place to serve. If you're serving and you don't like it, great, let's find you another place to serve. Over the last three months, Pastor Mikhail and I have been visiting each parish group and we've gotten to see them from the inside. And each one is different, but the connection and community that we longed for in the beginning is actually happening in this church. In fact, we have more people attending parish groups right now than we do in Sunday worship. Now, let me just say a word about worship, okay? People attend parish groups because of the connection and community. We, we are embodied, uh, Andrea reminded us. We are embodied people, and we are the embodied Jesus to one another. But there is something mysterious and grace-giving about making it a priority to come to worship. And when people go to parish groups, but they don't attend worship, it's actually difficult. I know I'm talking to the choir here. You're all here. But I'm just telling you, when it's difficult for us to talk about the spiritual, li- spiritual lives for those who were in worship. When you come to worship, it's actually good for you. But when you come to worship, it's also good for others. Because do you know that you have been prayed for before you even got here? I spend an enormous amount of time as I'm in preparation actually praying for you. I just don't prepare to teach something. I prepare with you actually in mind. I can see your face and your families and the stories you tell and the needs you have. I write about you and I prepare for you. I pray for you. And we miss you when you're not here. When we come to worship, we find ourselves here immersed in a story. And it's a grand story. It's a divine story. It's a story of belonging and a story of hope. And sometimes you come to worship and you don't like the preaching. I get it. Sometimes I don't like the preaching either. But here is what I know. I just spit all over my own manuscript. Here's what I know. Each week, there'll be an invitation into something good. Every single week. 
And I'm like you. Sometimes when I come, my heart is full or it's broken. Sometimes I come, I'm in a quandary or I don't know what to do or I'm completely stressed out or I'm doing really well. There are weeks like that. But I know regardless of my circumstance that I need you and I need God. And we are formed into a body here, a community. And worship is the great equalizer. Our failures are not put on display here. The famous are not held up or the most talented are held up while the poor are pushed down. And we do really weird things here. Weird things that shape us. We do things like talk to one another. In a world of tweet and text we never, where we never have to look somebody in the eye, we do that here. And we are present without agenda. We share with one another. That is strange. We tell stories. We read ancient texts. And then we do this really, really weird thing. We sing. How strange is that? Nowhere else does a group of people come together. Let's just sing a song together. Maybe in a pub they'll do it, or the national anthem, or a ball game, or New Year's Eve after they've had a drink or two and they've been liberated a little. But we come here weekly and we sing. And I would ask you to sing. Sing even if you don't feel like it. Because when you sing, you feel the air come up through you. And, and, and let the singing, even if you're bad at it, remind you that you are alive. And that is a gift. And listen to the person that you're singing next to, even if they're bad at it. Because it reminds you that they are alive. They are a human being. And you are breathing in and out the same air, carrying yourself next to them. They might be your closest uh, friend or neighbor that you've never met before. But you are doing it together. And the reason why we sing is more than the words on the wall. It's because if we do this thing that is so weird like sing together, we just might find that what else could be possible? Nowhere else in the world do they do this. And then, my friends, on the day when you can't sing, I get it. Come anyway. And let us do the singing for you. For you. Let us do that. Let us hold you up. And I'll say this. Finally, when you, when you come to worship, at the very least, or maybe I should say at the very most, you'll know that you're being invited to the Lord's table. Sometimes my week is such that I feel like I'm just trying to crawl to get to Sunday night. And I say to myself, at least I know there, there will be a table of grace. No matter how good anything else is or bad, no matter how good or bad the music is, or if something speaks to me, or if I, or if I feel something there, at least I know that I'll get to meet Jesus. And he'll meet me. Finally, this last ingredient is this, living the way of Jesus. You know, it was so exciting in those first days, these meetings, these mountaintop experiences, but these three came down the mountain with Jesus. And the disciples had this amazing experience, but they came down. And I think they were very surprised how ordinary their lives became after this miraculous event. And we've been in this building for two and a half years now, and there's nothing sexy anymore about our project. As a church, we've experienced the real highs, but frankly, we've come down. And there's, there's nothing flashy about our little church. We're just a little ordinary church. 
but it's in the ordinary among groups of people, strangers and former strangers, that is where the real miracles happen. I've told you before that one of my favorite saints that I look up to most is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, it's in the ordinary where the kingdom of God explodes. It's in people like us, people who do weird things, who sing songs together, who talk to neighbors, who give generously, who get to know one another's stories, who see ourselves in a greater story, people that believe generosity changes the world, people that do what it takes to create connection and community, people that want to be good and useful neighbors, people that try to live the way of Jesus. It's in people like us, those very ordinary people, where grace is offered to the world. This is the state of our church. This is how we got here. This is the kind of people we want to become. So could I pray for you? When we set out, God, five and a half years ago, imagining what it would be to start a church in Midtown Oklahoma City, we knew where we wanted to go, and we had a picture of what we wanted to do. And I can see the disciples who see you and say they think that they have known the Messiah. They say they think they have seen him. But once they get with you, they really had no idea. And that is us. That has been our experience. And so we recognize that this is where you have, that where we have come from, where you have brought us, And so we want to follow you in the very best ways that we can. We recognize that as we have come into this place, it has become our home. And we got to restore this building because of the generosity of others, but mainly because of your generosity. And we talk about this building as being an urban building in Oklahoma City. We wanted to reimagine and restore, but it was more than a building that's being restored. And it is. So because of that, we are given the gift to create connection and community, to find ways by which strangers now become friends and neighbors. We recognize that as we look around this congregation, even now, this sanctuary, that we did not know one another just a few years ago, but now you are shaping us into a certain kind of people. And the stories that we see are really good. We also recognize that we stand on this side of resurrection, And that you gave your disciples the commandment. You just hold on to these things until the resurrection happens. But we see resurrection wherever we go. So we point it out to one another so that we won't forget. Because we want to live in the same way that Jesus has invited us to live. Some of my friends have come to this place excited and charged up, looking forward to their week. Some of my friends have come to this place exhausted. And so they've just needed us to sing for them. So regardless of who we are or where we have come from, we're grateful that we get to come to your table and meet you because it is here where you will do a good thing in us. As my friend Brad says, it is around a table that the world changes. So we come ready to receive whatever you have for us so that you might change our world And we might partner with you to change the world in which we live.
So this is what we hope for and we pray for. And we find that we are grateful that we are here and that we are here together. And so we leave with gratitude and we do so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to invite you to the table of our Lord. This is a story that we step into and we do this every single week. And we step to it, we uh, approach a table where we receive the grace and the healing that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. When they mocked him, he did not respond, we remember. When they challenged him, he told quizzical, sometimes even humorous stories that forced them to think differently. And when they struck him, he took the pain. And when they put the worst bit of Roman equipment on his back, the heavy cross piece on which he would be killed, he carried it out to the city, to the place of his own execution. And when they nailed him to the cross, he prayed for them. This is a story that we remember when we come to the Lord's table. It is an invitation and it is an empowerment to live this way of Jesus. And here Jesus asks nothing of his disciples that he has not done himself. And so we remember this when we come here. When we come to this table, we remember it's about how to live into something new by discovering the living God and the loving and the dying and the, uh, Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves. So this is an open table. This is not a Church of the Nazarene table. It is Jesus' table. And by coming to this table, we open ourselves to and trust the saving work of God in Christ. So I want to invite you to come. It is Jesus' table, and all who are open to this, uh, this work of God are invited to come. We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. But I invite you to come down the aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it. Because all we have is a gift. So uh, if you cannot make it down one of our aisles, just wave to Justin, and he would love to come and bring the, uh, bring the elements to you. But when you come down the aisle, approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, eat it, and then be grateful. All you have, my friends, and all you are is grace. So I invite you to this table to experience this grace in full. You are welcome to come when you are ready.